Welcome to American History Untucked. I'm your host, David Silkenhead. Uh, my guest for this show is Donald Schaefer, uh, who is a historian of the Civil War and Emancipation. Uh, he's the author of After the Glory, The Struggles of Black Civil War Veterans. that uh, was published by Kansas in 2004. And he's also the author of a popular Civil War blog, Civil War Emancipation, which puts emancipation really at the, the heart of the Civil War experience. Our conversation is in large part about his research on the Civil War and Reconstruction and about that black experience in particular, but it's also about his experience uh, teaching online. For the past several years, Donald has been teaching exclusively online for several different institutions, and we have a chance to talk some about how teaching online is different than teaching in the classroom and what his experience has been like uh, reaching a very different kind of student than one usually uh, encounters in a traditional university. So here's my conversation with Donald Schaefer. So welcome to the show. It's good to have you on. How are things in Arizona? Um, getting hotter all the time. time. Okay. So so have you planted uh, your your garden for the for the season? Oh, um, my my garden's coming to an end. Uh, the um, gardening season here actually begins when everybody else is in the temperate part of the country is ending, and ends when pretty much everybody else is beginning their gardens. Um, my spring garden is well along, but it should probably be over sometime in June. Oh, okay, that's a. This is too dang hot here to grow anything in the summer. Uh, I was in I was in Arizona, uh, I guess about two years ago in the summer stupidly um traveling to california <laughs> and, and we decided to go camping all over the place which was seemed like a really good idea when we planned it out and it turned out to be mostly a good idea but was uh really yeah. damn hot if you were in the mountains you probably would have been okay sometimes we were in the mountains and sometimes we are not in the mountains and yeah i mean <laughs> the, the summer here it's it's kind of like winter uh, in north dakota but you get to wear shorts but you spend your time indoors fair enough that's the commonality. So you're known as a historian of, of the Civil War and of, of the Emancipation. What got you interested in, in the Civil War and, and the black experience in the Civil War in the first place? Accident, pure accident. Um, I am a student of Ira Berlin, and... I became a student of Ira Berlin by accident. I, uh, I actually went to Maryland to work with another professor. And um, the first semester that I arrived, I hadn't pre-registered for anything. So I was sort of stuck with whatever seminars were open. Mm -hmm. And um, Ira Berlin slavery seminar happened to open. It was a choice between that or economic history. And I decided I didn't want to do economic history. So I did Ira Berlin's slavery seminar and I was hooked. Well, so, what is I mean, he like as the teacher? I've met him a few times. Oh, but, uh... Amazing. All right. Amazing. Um, he is um, very personable. He runs, I mean, there, you know, there are professors at Maryland, for instance, who are total SOBs, to mm. be told. I won't say who. All right. Um, but Ira ran a very collegial but also, a, you know, a very tough seminar. But, I mean, you never felt like he was trying to, you know, in any way put you on the spot. Um, and I said, yeah, this is definitely somebody I want to work with. So, um, 
And then I was also fortunate very early in my PhD to come across um, source material that I ended up using in my dissertation. And so things just sort of um, came together. You know, I think a lot of people go to graduate school thinking they know what they want to do. And then as soon as they get there, you know, they, they have different ideas about what interests them and what's important. And sometimes it's the source material that does that. And sometimes it's, you know, meeting a particular professor that, that really does that. And I, I, had a, I had a fairly similar sort of experience to you where I went to graduate school thinking I was going to do, I had some ideas and didn't end up really doing that. And, you know, it's driven to, to other things. But what was it about uh, the African, the, the military experience? Did you get involved in the, the Freedmen Southern Society project, I guess, that was going on at the same time? I was never formally involved in it, but um, the teaching assistants at Maryland had, you know, they were up there on the top floor, mm -hmm. essentially what was an attic. And um, that's where the offices of the Freedmen Southern Society project were. So, I interacted with them a lot, particularly Leslie Rowland and whoever else happened to be on the staff at the time. She was on my committee and also, you know, very, very sharp scholar, um, amazing person. I've never met a more detail-oriented person in my life. Um, you know, I always sort of felt that if I could get Leslie to like anything I did, <laughs> the rest of the world would like it too. I mean, just, I mean, she was the person, I actually feared her, for, feared her on my committee more than I feared I ever was. Mm. Just, just an absolutely amazing. I've only met her once. I, I actually interviewed for a, they have, I guess they have internships uh, or postdocs at, at the Freedmen's Southern Society Project, and I, I didn't get it, but I was very, very impressed with her in the oh, yeah. 20 minutes we talked at the AHA. And, you know, she, I mean, even when Ira Berlin was the head of the project, you know, she was the person who was sweating the details mm -hmm. in the background. Not that Ira's contribution wasn't major, right? But I mean, um, you know, she's been with the project since the very beginning, and uh, just just an absolutely amazing person. I can't say anything except the most praiseworthy things about um, Leslie Rowland. Just a terrific lady. Well, the the volumes they've produced, I guess they I don't know how they're six or seven volumes now. It seems like have been just tremendously useful for. You know, people who don't have the, the the ability to go and visit the documents in person and to be able to disseminate that story um, to a, to a wider audience. And they got a lot of stuff up there in their files that they never used in the volumes. That's mm. a lot of people aren't aware of. And so, I mean, I literally had that stuff, you know, or just you know across the room. And I, and I did end up using some of it in my dissertation, but the the source that really became um, my dissertation and eventually the book after the glory were the Civil War pension funds. Mm -hmm. And believe it or not, I did not learn about those from Ira Berlin. I learned about those from Lou Harlan. Hmm. All right. Um, one of the things that Ira did, you know, when I said, I, I would like to work with you, he said, well, I want you to go and talk to every other, you know, professor in the department. You know, and see, I mean, just make sure you really want to work with me. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so I went to talk to Lewis Harlan, who, of course, is noted, the noted biographer of a Booker T. Washington. Yeah, he would have just been about to retire, I guess, when you got there. It, that, exactly. See, that's one of the reasons why um, 
I mean, I, I knew that in any case, you know, I wouldn't, I wasn't about to start with Lewis Harlan because he, it was literally his last year. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, you know, I was sort of saying, well, you know, I mean, this is what I'm thinking of doing. Um, you know, do you have any recommendations? And, you know, he said, well, there was those dang pension files down there. Nobody's ever really been able to do much of anything with them. You know, but I think there's some real potential there. Right. And it was kind of, you know, took me aback. And so um, then um, I got involved in an internship at the Maryland State Archives where, funny enough, I ended up working quite a bit with Civil War pension files. And so, you know, I became familiar with them in the process of essentially what amounted to a separate job. Hmm. And so when I finally got through my, you know, major field comprehensive exams and I was ready to do the dissertation, you know, I was able to hit the ground running because I already was very familiar with the source. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what I find really particular, you know, riveting about that book is there were lots of people, you know, when that book came out, that were writing about the, the black experience during the war, but that the story sort of stopped with... Uh, either in 1865 or stopped in Reconstruction, and you took the story sort of beyond beyond when the war ended and recognized like, how the, the ramifications had the war. And it developed out of Berlin's seminar. I mean, I wrote a seminar paper there on um, the black military experience, and as I surveyed the literature, which was by then becoming rather sizable, it's even mm -hmm. more sizable now, um, I basically realized that there wasn't a lot on them after the war. All right. And so um, that's where, like I said, things just sort of came together. You know, I saw that I had, you know, that sort of um, remark by Lou Harlan and uh, the internship. And it's, you know, I mean, um, a lot of serendipitous, fortunate um, events that guided me towards a, a dissertation topic I just found absolutely fascinating. And, um, you know, I would, go and do research all day downtown in um, the archives. And every night I come home and, you know, I just have all sorts of stories to tell my wife um, about, you know, what I'd found that day. It was just like, you know, every day you found something just, you know, totally interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, that's one of the things I tell my students is that they, they often, you know, want to have a plan going into the research on what it is they're going to find and, and oftentimes what they... You know, I tell them that the things that are, you're going to find are not be necessarily for what you're looking for, that you may go in looking for X and find Y, and Y is really what's interesting. That's what's, you know, follow what the sources tell you to do. Um, well, it turned out I had a pretty good research plan. I mean, I started with a random sample of just, I think it was 1,044. I was shooting for 1,000. I did one a little bit more just to be on the safe side. Mm -hmm. And I looked, you know, I looked at their military service records, and then I said, okay, for those people I'm going to find that, you know, who had pension files, which is a little bit over half, and just, you know, f see what I find. And, um, you know, the results are, of course, um, in what eventually became After the Glory. Mm -hmm. I mean, I wonder just how many, you know, that particular body of sources is the sources that nobody had really looked at before you did. And you wonder how many others sort of, troves of sources are out there that no one has just sort of recognized are there. Yeah, I mean, um, well, the Pentafiles, the, Pentif the thing that I think that discouraged people from getting into them were two things. First of all, they're a document that is very associated with genealogy. Mm. All right, I was literally, you know, up there in the microrome 
film room, first of all, with all the genealogists. And then I was, I mean, at one point, the archive staff put all the people with pension files off in a different, different search room. Hmm. I was literally there with, you know, all the, you know, the genealogists and, you know, I was really the only scholar in there. And um, so, I mean, I sort of felt like, you know, oh, my God, you know, is this, what's wrong here? Mm. Um, you know, um, because but the other thing is, is it's very see people oftentimes when they do research, they want to be able to get to the heart of the matter of what they're trying. You know, they have a question. They want to address it. And they want the documents going to that's going to tell them exactly what they want to know. And pension files, you, you can't really, I mean, you know, unless you know that the document, you know, the, this is an interesting thing and it addresses what you want to find out about, um, you know, you just sort of got, you're not going to be able to get to, I mean, it's a wonderful document that has a lot of stuff in it, but you never, never know what, I mean, there are pension files that I saw that, you know, nearly you'd open it, there was one piece of paper and that was it. Mm -hmm. And then there are ones that were like three or four inches thick mm -hmm. paper. And, um, but I mean, I mean, some of them just, you know, weren't very interesting. And some of them were, you know, incredibly rich and you just never knew what you were going to get on any given day. Mm -hmm. Right. But it happened often enough. But like I said, I always had interesting stories to tell when I got home that night. All right. But I mean, you know, it's not a document, uh, you know, I mean, for instance, People use the Freedmen and Southern Society Pride. They get a reasonably good idea of, you know, okay, I'm interested in X, Y, and Z. This is where I go to find it. And I know from the volumes, you know, there's already plenty of interesting stuff. I mean, what I really think needs to be done at some point is there needs to be some sort of editorial project, like there was for the Freedmen and Southern Society Project, in which somebody, um, you know, goes in and surveys the pension files for everything that is of value there to the African-American experience. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they could do it for other, um, you know, I mean, I mean, it's just a wonderful social history um, source, you know, because it involved in the end hundreds of thousands of Americans. And it's not just the veterans, it's their families. families sure. And, 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 you know, their communities. And, um, you know, the, the, like I said, the biggest impediment to pension file usage so far is that, you know, I mean, I mean, I understand, you know, I understand what a lot of other people are going through a lot better now that I'm out of D.C. You know, and you go and you have seven days at the archives or however much time you have. And, you know, you got to make it count really quickly. Sure. See, I had the luxury of, you know, just being able to go there for months on end years really and just see what i i got and that's just not true for a lot of people although i guess increasingly with digitization you know those kinds of barriers to time and space are are not what they used to be um, yeah it, it should be helpful but the problem with pension files is just the this the amount of source material you know they could be digitalizing things for for decades centuries i mean mm -hmm. it's that amount of, it's huge um, and so, I mean, I'm sure they'll, they'll get some good stuff out there and I'm all for digitalization. Um, even if it's just scanning the, scanning the document rather than, you know, truly digitalizing it. Mm -hmm. Um, but I mean, the volume of stuff down there is, I mean, it's just mind boggling. I mean, when you got hundreds of thousands of cases, um, you know, um, you know, 
it could take lifetimes for a group of people to work through them. It's just that much stuff. Yeah. Your comment about, I think, about genealogists is really interesting because uh, you know a lot of historians, when we think about genealogists, if we think about them at all, tend to have this uh, negative association with genealogists when we're sitting in the search room and they're taking up all the good tables. Um, but genealogists do lots of you know good work that we can benefit from that if people sort of take the time to to look at it. Um, I know there have been a number of cases where where genealogists have done some of the legroom to help me that I can then build upon. Um, you know, and what they're looking for and what I'm looking for are different kinds of things, but they have sort of curious intersections. Um, yeah. No, I agree. I agree. Um, you know, I mean, I didn't mind hanging around with the genealogists. They're you know nice people and you know it's only a short I don't know why they stuck all the people with pension files over there for a couple months I mean you know, they did it and I guess they were just I mean for them it was sort of a matter of you know records management you know trying to serve their public better but I mean you know it's off of the main search room and one of the um, you know rooms next to it and they're just sort of was scratching my head wondering what was going on it was I mean but you're right genealogists can um, you know, do a lot of stuff that can be a benefit to us, and certainly we can be a benefit to them. I know I've been approached by several families since the book has been published, you know, saying, oh, hey, you know, you did something about my ancestors. Thank mm -hmm. you so much. You know, that, that, was, that was rather nice. I've had the same thing happen, but usually the ancestors I was writing about were not particularly nice people or had bad things happen to them, so those people weren't always entirely happy that I found their ancestors. Um, yeah, no, I'm, my, I'm sorry to hear that, but my, my um, interaction, but they're very, you know, nice, gracious. Well, yeah, I think you have a much more heroic narrative than, than the book I wrote, but... Uh, well, that's true. I mean, suicide and despair, boy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I guess it was about four years ago that you started your blog on emancipation? No, well, let's see. I started it, this I believe... January 2011, I think? 2011, so it's been more like three years. Three years, okay. And I mean, yeah, I mean, it went red hot at first. I mean, I'm probably down to a couple posts a month now. You know, I'm busy. I mean, there's less stuff to write about, and you know, I mean, eventually it sort of, you know, you know, it sort of simmers down. But I mean, I'm still, you know, writing from time to time. So, what was the original sort of impetus that drove you to write the blogs? Well. The position I was in at the time, I knew that I wouldn't be going to a lot of conferences, or I will, I will, you know, and I wouldn't be able to go to archives, and so I wouldn't be able to, you know, publish a lot of traditional, you know, articles and such, you know, and I, I wouldn't be able to be able to get myself on the profession that way. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, just sort of, you know, I was looking for something to do, and then all of a sudden one day it hit me. You know, nobody was doing this, and you know, I mean, I, I mean, you know, I've often, for a long time, been interested in online, mm -hmm. whatever, and um, so I mean, okay, let's give this a try and see what happens. And I thought that maybe, you know, um, you know, maybe I could somehow spin this off into a book project down the line. Um, you know, I just, just interested. I mean, you know, I also wanted, in a certain sense, to, ex you know, get it. I mean. You know, experience emancipation at the pace that it happened by sort of looking at what was happening over the period of the war. Mm -hmm. You know, um, 
And I mean, you know, I, I actually, you know, learned some things that I didn't know along the way. And, um, you know, um, but also I've always been as a scholar, you know, of the belief that as historians, probably, you know, we talk a little bit too much to each other and not enough to the, the public. Now, of course, there's good reasons why we have our own internal conversations, mm -hmm. right? But I mean, you know, for instance, you know, a few months ago, there was that, um, you know, Nicholas Kristof, you know, saying, you know, that, you know, scholars weren't, you know, being public, you know, spirited enough, weren't doing enough, you know, to be um, public scholars. Which and I thought was a ludicrous column. Um, it was a ludicrous column, all right, but, um, you know, still had a bit of a point yeah all right i mean and there's a lot i mean i suppose the point was you know he he didn't you know he didn't believe you know, he he just didn't see us out there and you know a lot of us were sort of you know, you know hey 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 here we are um you know and for some reason he wasn't you know seeing the people that were out there but you know there is a bit of um you know there are, you know for instance when i tell some people i do a blog there's sort of a you know there's put politely skeptical all right i mean you know that this is somehow not you know truly scholarly hmm. and, and um you know i mean if i was still you know i mean involved in you know the whole tenure track sort of thing i mean um you know i really wonder about how my blog would be looked upon you know by um people who want traditional peer-reviewed um publications hmm. I mean, I've done that. I mean, um, I've probably done my share. Sure. Um, but I mean, this, I was just, you know, I didn't have that pressure anymore. I wanted to be relevant both to my colleagues and to the public at large. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was an interesting experiment. And, um, you know, um, I think it's been a, you know, it hasn't been a great success, but it's been a modest success. And I think it's been something well worth doing. I, I've really enjoyed you know, reading it, and I, I think it sort of fit an interesting, you know, gap about the Civil War online, where it put emancipation really at the the heart of the entire conflict, and say, let's look at the conflict basically in real time through the lens of emancipation, which is obviously something that scholars have been doing, talking to each other for for a generation, but it's something that does hadn't really made its presence online in the same sort of same sort of way um I mean, you know I, i'm sorry no go ahead no you go ahead well i, I was just you know i think when you began the blog it's it, reading it seemed like you were just sort of dissatisfied with how the civil war was being presented online and 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 dissatisfied with with sort of the the public uh the broader public conversation about the war uh, and I'm curious how your thoughts about those kinds of things have, have progressed in the in the years you've been doing the blog. Well, I mean, I wouldn't say I was dissatisfied. All right, that's interesting. I, I never thought of it that way. I mean, what I thought was, okay, I mean, I have this background, um, you know, as a student of emancipation and its aftermath, and I didn't really see anybody doing anything about that when... You know, in my own personal opinion, I think emancipation is the most important thing that happened not only in the Civil War, but I think in the 19th century.
um, you know, one of the major, you know, turning points of American history. And so, um, you know, I, I thought that somebody as part of the sesquicentennial should be, you know, doing something about that. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how it started. And, um, you know, I staked out my territory. And, and, you know, I mean, another thing I, I wanted about the blog was that, I mean, there was a lot of blog. I mean, for instance, you know, one of my favorite blogs is, well, two of my two, my two favorite Civil War blogs are Kevin Levin's, um, you know, Civil War Memory and Brooke Simpson's Crossroads. Sure. But um, they are very much caught up in, you know, the current controversies, if you want to call it, about, um, you know, neo-Confederates and, you know, that whole thing. And it's interesting to read, but, you know, um, I wanted actually to, you know, do the history. Mm -hmm. And I mean, if I thought it was important to, you know, talk about, you know, how people, you know, current popular perceptions and controversies along the way, that may be fine. But I wanted a blog that was much more steeped in the time period and not, you know, about how people are confronting it at present in mm -hmm. terms, of, you know, both academia and popular culture. So how, how do you think the sesquicentennial is done in terms of presenting emancipation as being a central event or a central, uh, you know, it's, part it's, of the war? It's an okay job. I mean, I mean, it's, it's a vast difference than, you know, it was 50 years ago when you had the centennial. Mm -hmm. Definitely race is much more part of the conversation. And, you know, I mean, another place um, I, you know, spend regular time is at this union blog on the New York Times. Sure. And I think they've done, you know, I mean, they, they have to satisfy a lot of stakeholders, and I think they've done a reasonably good job of bringing in emancipation and race. Um, I, you know, I haven't liked everything that's come out of that particular blog, but, um, you know, I think we've done a good job. I think the... The main thing I think that's hurt the sesquicentennial um, is basically the recession that began before it happened. You know, because there was a lot of state-level activity that might have happened if there had been, you know, a budget for it. But actually, sure. you know, when governments had to choose between, okay, you know, do I keep Medicare patients or do I fund the Civil War sesquicentennial, I think they made the appropriate choice. Um, but still, um, you know, that, I mean, it, it took some of the air out of it. I mean, plus, you know, some people, you know, the 150, I mean, they relate better to say a, a centennial and a bicentennial, but a sesquicentennial, you know, why are we, why are we making a big deal about it 150 years later? I mean, mm. it's, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I think the sesquicentennial has benefited from a lot of good technology and a lot of, you know, good historiography in the last 50 years. Um, you know, I, I kind of wonder what the centennial would have been like, you know, if you had the Internet and the web and Skype and all the things that um, we have now. Um, you know, I mean, we, a lot, you know, a lot of, more, I mean, like I said, I mean, could a professor have done back in the centennial what I'm doing now? Not at all. Um, you know, um, and so, I mean, it's... It, I think some people in the profession have a responsibility to, you know, see what they can do with the technology 
you know, especially if they're in a position where, you know, um, they work for people who, who like technology, are friendly to it, and, you know, um, take a favorable view of what they're doing as opposed to, you know, um, people sort of steeped in the traditional paradigm. Uh, I mean, I, I, I mean, I'm all for peer-reviewed, um, you know, publications. Sure. Even online. All right. But, I mean, you know, I think there's a... I mean, one of the things we can have right now, I mean, for like I said, I don't go to conferences. I haven't been to a conference in probably about four years. But I feel more connected to the profession now um, than I did back in the days when I went. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I mean, um, I work at home. I, you know, I don't have a traditional academic department. Um, but, you know, I have all sorts of, um, you know, academic friends on Facebook Mm -hmm. and, you know, um, you know, I hear what, you know, I read what they, you know, write and I write my own stuff and, you know, I mean, I, I feel like I have, I find it about what I really want to know, you know, more or less as it happens as opposed to learning about it weeks or months later, which might've been the case when, you know, I was in graduate school and, you know, the internet revolution was just beginning to happen. And, you know, yes, I was up among historians every day, some of the best, you know, in the United States. And I mean, still, I mean, I didn't feel as connected as I feel now. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I feel I feel the same way. I'm not quite sure I would have taken this position in Scotland as quickly as I did, uh, you know, if it weren't for my, if I didn't know that I could connect with people across the Atlantic easily, that, uh, you know, I, I think the amount of isolation people have is, is you know, sort of disappeared. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about your teaching because you made a move several years ago to to move to be a, a an online teacher full time. And I know I've done a little bit of online teaching when I was in North Dakota, and I'm teaching an online class in the fall. So I've done a little bit of it, but I've always done it sort of as an ancillary to uh, classroom teaching. You do uh, online teaching, I guess, as, as, as the main or the totality of your teaching, right? Exclusively, yeah. Exclusively, I've been exclusively online for about the last four years. So I was curious if you could talk a little bit about your decision to be cut, to do that kind of teaching and, and what that kind of teaching, how it's different from teaching in a classroom. In a traditional class, it's still a classroom. Right? To be sure. You know, well, it ha- like like what happened with um, my you know um, doctoral work. It kind of happened by happenstance. All right, um, I was in a position in a small college in Iowa, and um, I had some rather disagreeable senior colleagues. And so I mean, you know, people I you know seemed perfectly nice in the interview, but I mean, you know, when you got to work with them on a more regular basis, you know, you, you sort of could see that it wasn't, you know, things weren't going to work. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and my wife did not like Iowa. Right? <laughs> my wife was from Colorado and from Denver. And, you know, I mean, I had gone to a small college in Iowa. I knew what I was getting into. She didn't. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so I sort of was looking for, you know, a path out of there. And, you know, so it just happened that um, one of the places I got, um, you know, an offer from was American Public University System. Um, it was part-time, but then I sort of had a, you know, chat with, you know, 
um, one of the administrators of Upper Iowa, and he said, "Well, I mean, you know, we're sorry to see you go, but since you know, you know, we, we, would you like to stay with the online program?" I said, "Okay, sure." So I had, you know, I had I had two part-time jobs that made a full-time job, and then I realized, oh, hey, I can try other places as well. And then I got in with the University of Phoenix for a while until their enrollment collapsed, and um, they laid me off and. Um, you know, now I work with Ashford, so um, it's been an interesting, um, you know, uh, you know, I mean, you don't have the security that you have in the traditional system, but I mean, if you diversify who you're working for enough, um, you can actually make a fairly decent living. Yeah, uh, we, I you know, read these studies about, about what percentage of American students are now doing their college education online and you know every time i read it it surprises me about the, you know how robust uh both the online education is at traditional universities and at the the for-profits and uh, i think it's a part of the educational system that to lots of people is somewhat invisible it is it is a lot of people don't realize it's there um or you know what i do i mean i um about a year ago was fortunate enough to be invited to um a symposium at Harvard. It was a great honor. Mm. And I was talking to, um, you know, a, a very senior professor um, whose name you'd recognize. I'm just going to leave him out of it because I don't want to, you know, embarrass him. Um, but, you know, he thought, uh, he, he had been involved in the massive online open courses, the MOOCs, sure. as it's called. And he sort of, that he thought that was the totality of the online world. And I said, no, this is all this other stuff, you know, and, you know, I literally opened up a, a new avenue to him. He didn't really know it was there. And this is somebody at, you know, a major Ivy League university. Um, and so, you I mean, but, you know, they're serving a, um, a clientele in higher education that's long been there, but has been, you know, poorly served, and that is the adult learner. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, for instance, a lot of my students at APUS are either active duty or recently departed military. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite stories is, you know, not long after I started at APUS, you know, I'm, I'm cooking breakfast for my kids one Sunday morning and my, you know, my phone goes off and I pick it up and it is literally one of my students on the phone from Afghanistan from his fire base. So... <laughs> Um, asking me questions, and he had questions about his assignment, you know, and um, here's the well, thing. I think he'd have other concerns at that particular point in time than the... Right. Well, I mean, that's, see, that's students who are, you know, active duty military or out in deployments, literally out in the field, all right, um, you know, are taking online classes, right? Um, and so, I mean, it's just, it's amazing. I mean, I've literally, I mean, I had the just sort of, you know, um, students you just never would guess. I had a, a student, um, actually it was a couple. They were both in the class, and they were both in Iran. Hmm. And they were Italians, right? Italians were in Iran because the, the male member of the, um, of the couple was a professional volleyball player. And for some reason, you know, he found a place in a team in Iran. And so, I mean, they were, why they were taking classes with an American online university, you know, while he's playing volleyball in Iran, I mean, it's just, you know, things I just, just never imagined possible. Mm -hmm. 
you know, that there were such people out there. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's been, I mean, I, I haven't regretted it. Not, not at all. Um, you know, I mean, I kind of wish sometimes that, um, you know, there were more nonprofits in the online world. I think that would be uh, a little bit better for the students. But I think, um, you know, some of the online providers, particularly the ones I work for, are doing a you know a, a pretty good job, um, and there are some very um, very good students, um, you know, and a lot of these I mean people you know are people who either weren't able to call, go to college, you know, at the regular time or because of you know their own particular personal development weren't ready. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, and this is a way for them, you know, and plus another um, clientele we serve are you know women who have you know a large number of kids they might be single mothers and such and this is the way they literally can't get away from the house except when they work or whatever and this is a way for them you know or their or their housewives you know and their husbands work and they don't but they have you know three or four kids all under the age of five or whatever and this is the only way they can go to school mm-hmm. and so i mean you know um you know i remember Back when I was still in Colorado, I was talking to her about, you know, we knew that, you know, we were going to have this, you know, generation of, of veterans are going to come to school on the on the GI Bill. And we were sort of wondering, you know, when are they going to start hitting us? Well, they have mostly, I mean, you, you have, you find them on regular college campuses too, but I'd say a whole lot of them are, are you know, bypassing um, the traditional um, higher education, you know, infrastructure mm-hmm. uh, to take their classes online simply because it's more convenient for them. Sure. And because, I, I, I can imagine lots of other reasons too. I know so lots yeah. of students have, you know, soldiers I mean, who've come back and they're five years older than their classmates and they obviously have a very different life experience than the 18 year olds they're sitting next to. And so uh, they just simply can't, you know, get to the campus from whatever job or whatever responsibilities they have. I mean, you know, I'm not suggesting that online is some great panacea. Mm-hmm. I, it's it in many ways, it's no different than any other classroom you ever will, you've ever taught it. Um, you know, and the asynchronous aspect of it is rather interesting. But I mean, you know, for instance, one thing I like about online that I didn't like about the d- traditional classroom is people can't hang back. Mm-hmm. In a traditional classroom, you can have, you know, you could be, you know, conversing with your students and there's probably, you know, a, a group of them that, you know, um, are hogging most of the conversation. And, you know, some people that are sort of, you know, getting in every now and then. And then there's a group of them sort of hanging back and not participating at all, just sort of, you know. Um, and then, all, you know, the heart of an online classroom is the discussion forums and everybody's got to, you know, you know, Participation is mandatory. You can't pass the class without, you know, you know, doing your um, your regular posts and responses to other people and so forth. Hmm. And so, I mean, it, I think it's very valuable in that respect. Um, you know, in that it it literally, I mean, there is act. I mean, you can't. I mean, granted, it's maybe not the same as active learning in a traditional classroom, mm-hmm. but um, you know, everybody is. At least in writing, um, you know, um, contributing to the conversation. So, if you were to go back into a traditional classroom, what 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 techniques would you take that you learned from teaching online that would be valuable? Well, 
That's a good question. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm certainly open to, you know, in, at some point, um, although I'm enjoying what I'm doing. Um, well, see, the thing is, even before, see, one of the reasons why going online was such a natural thing for me is my classes have always had an online component. Um, going back to, um, you know, the 1990s when I had email listservs. <laughs> yeah. All right, and then eventually, you know, we, you know, you moved into play things like Blackboard and stuff like that. Um, so, I mean, I suppose what I'd bring in is a more sophisticated use of of online instruction. Mm -hmm. All right, I mean, my classes would still be hybrid, but I mean, um, you know, I've learned a lot of valuable stuff about you know how to teach online that I sort of you know. Um, didn't know when I was teaching my hybrid classes before, you know, I, I joined the, um, the online teaching community. So how much, uh, most people I probably don't know too much, what, what, what is the community of teachers online? Because the, the inference I think a lot of people would have is the teaching online is very isolating, but I guess from what you're saying is it's not. Well, I mean, you don't, the, the thing is, you, you know, you don't know a lot of your colleagues, mm -hmm. right? I mean, um, now we do have, I mean, at least for two of the schools that I teach for, um, you know, you do have department meetings from time to time, but your department could literally be a hundred people scattered all around the country and some of them, you know, international as well. Sure. Um, and, you know, calling into a um, you know, conference call, you know, or, you know, using some sort of online form, you know, similar to, you know, Skype, you know, like an online conference call. And, um, you know, you get a sense of, of, you know, who's out there. But, I mean, it, it's, um, you know, it's, you know, there's a lot of PhDs um, um, more and more all the time. I mean, um, a couple of the places I knew when I started, you could, you could um, teach with them with a master's degree. But, you know, increasingly um, they're getting, um, you know, guidance, pressure from um, the accreditors to, um, you know, only hire PhDs. And so, you know, increasingly the, the community is, is looking more and more like, uh, you know, the regular traditional campus, um, you know, at least in terms of the faculty, sure. except that we're, you know, all scattered about. And, you know, some of my Facebook friends are, are faculty from places where I teach. And so, I mean, I maybe not as, involved with my colleagues as I would be, um, you know, as I was back when I taught on a traditional college campus. Um, but I'm okay with that. All right. It was a little bit of an adjustment. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, like I said, I, I, I feel much more connected to the profession as a whole. Sure. Well, I mean, it seems that the, there was a stigma attached to online teaching when it began. And I think a lot of that has has gradually dissipated when people realize that, you know, lots of people teaching the online courses are just as qualified, just as well-trained as, as people who are teaching at the universities. They're just doing it in a, in a different way. I once was very skeptical of it, too. I mean, I thought it was like a glorified correspondence course. Mm -hmm. And it can be taught that way. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of very serious people doing a very professional job 
for uh, a segment of the you know academic um, clientele, uh, most like I said, the adult learners. So, like you know, before we're not particularly well served by traditional academia. Mm-hmm. You know, whose um, you know paradigm is you know around you know sort of focused around you know the traditional college um, you know age student. And you know, for the research universities, the uh, you know the graduate um, you know type students, and people in their um, late teens and early twenties. And I guess you must get more interesting conversations when you get people with that diversity of backgrounds. Oh yeah, and I mean, you get some people. I mean, you know, who um, who shall we say have been around? You know, who have very valuable. Um, you know, um, life experiences, whether it involves uh, military service or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, you know people who, you know, because of what they've done, you know, have been in some fairly um, responsible positions, but just didn't have a college degree, and now for whatever reason, um, you know, either have been told they have to get one or feel the need for one or whatever. And I mean. You know, these these are not you know your your callow eighteen year old freshman, mm-hmm. right? And you, you got to treat them with a um, you know you know with respect for their for their very um, you know valuable real world experiences. So I just have one final question for you. You you began your blog when you uh, when the sesquicentennial started. Are you going to end the blog when the sesquicentennial ends, or are you going to plan to continue the story on afterwards? Well, you know, one of the things I've been thinking of is shifting the blog. Um, I mean, I don't know. I haven't decided yet. I mean, one of the things, like I said, I want to maybe get a book out of this, and I might shift over to that if I'm ready, if I feel I'm ready. Um, the other thing I've been thinking of is sort of renaming the blog, something like, you know, remembering Reconstruction or something mm. like that. Because I don't think there's going to be much of a sesquicentennial celebration of Reconstruction. Sure. And that might be something, you know, um, where I could make an even bigger contribution than I'm making now. Yeah. I'm thinking there's, there's definitely a, a market for that. I think a lot of people are sort of looking in that direction, recognizing uh, all this scholarship on memory hasn't gone past 1865 as much as it could. Well, I don't know if, you know, there's, there's quite the interest that there was in the Civil War. I mean, certainly there's no, I don't know if there's any Reconstruction buffs out there. Um, but, you know, I mean, um, you know, I'm willing to do it you know, for whoever is willing to, to pay attention. As are we all. Yes. Well, it was really nice talking with you, Donald. It's a great pleasure. Um, you know, enjoy your time over there in, in Scotland. I, I, I'm envious. <laughs> it was really great to talk with Donald. Uh, I guess there were some places in there where Skype wasn't our friend and the audio was a little bit uh, patchy, but I guess that's what you get when you're talking across an ocean in eight time zones. We've got a website, americanhistoryuntucked.blogspot.com, and there are links there to Donald's blog and to his book if you're interested in looking at either of those. Uh, We also have an email address if you have questions or uh, comments about the show or would like to suggest a guest or a topic. Or if you happen to be a historian and want to appear on the show, uh, or you can email me at AmericanHistoryUntucked at gmail.com. Stay tuned. <laughs>